From somewhere in Northeast Indiana, Mike Davidson lives. And now your host of the podcast, Mike Davidson. Well, yes, Mr. Robert. Thank you very much. It's me. It's Mike. Mike Davidson lives. Thanks for downloading this latest podcast and doing this Monday morning uh, while I still have the time to do this on a Monday morning, usually do this Sunday night. Uh, but again, I fell asleep. It was a long-ass weekend for me. Um, and, and when you say long-ass weekend, when I say long-ass weekend, um, it, it's, it has a different connotation uh, from the time I was 23 to now. I'm sitting at 43. 23 would mean, yeah, I went out with my buddies, we went out to Broadway, we drank all night and had a blast, and I was just it was so long and I was hungover. When it's a long-ass weekend for an adult and someone uh, who's middle-aged, it pretty much means, okay, worked long-ass Friday, uh, had to take care of a boy who was dealing with an earache and dealing with two very picky eaters being Lana and Hazel. Uh, that's why it, that's why I just absolutely crashed Sunday night. I couldn't get to the podcast, and I tried desperately to do so, but... Uh, yeah, I worked about 11 hours Friday. Not the wor- longest I've ever worked at the place, um, but it was a long day. It was hot and humid, and uh, we're all kind of gearing up toward Labor Day weekend, trying to knock out as much as we can this week, so it's going to be even longer. Uh, my my son's had an earache. Uh, I took him to the doctor. He did very well at the doctor, but uh, he's been kind of out of sorts because of it, uh, not to the point where he had the, uh, like a, six months back, he had a febrile seizure. Uh, he hasn't had that, thank God. But but anytime he gets a sniffle, I get kind of nervous because I think back to that. He's done all right so far. It's just getting him to take the damn medicine half the time. And then, you know, uh, Saturday night I made some burgers for the kids. And I think I was the only one that ate because Logan was sleeping. He was sick. And the girls just, they're, they're picky eaters. And they're like, Dad, I want ketchup. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I get a bottle of ketchup out. And I go in the other room and read. More on that later. And uh, my wife comes back into the bedroom. She goes, there's an empty bottle of kitchen on, uh, uh, ketchup on the table, and I don't want to know where the contents are. So I go out, look at both their plates, and it's just a swimming pool of ketchup in each one. There might be a burger in there somewhere. Somewhere. So they went to bed without dinner. It was just... I was a little upset. Lana... My, my wife went up to, to her later and talked to her and said, hey, your, your dad works hard and he does all this stuff. And Lana came down and later apologized to me. And I just I noticed kind of a sea change in her Sunday because she went up to her room and actually cleaned without me having to say anything. So I, I think it, uh, whatever my wife said kind of hit home and I was very appreciative of that. All right, the, uh, I am reading American Prometheus, uh, the basis to Oppenheimer, uh, about Robert Oppenheimer. Very strange dude, very strange dude. Uh, kind of a uh, kind of a warning about one of the authors. I think is or was. I think one of the authors has died, but uh, was a, a writer, an editor for the Nation, which is left leaning. So of course, there's going to be a little sympathy toward anything New Dealish and all that. Uh, but it's still a very interesting book. But the thing is, is the authors are kind of just because Robert Oppenheimer is kind of a contradiction. Of things, he's you know, kind of like uh, Travis Bickle, taxi driver, except without all the murder. Well, okay, maybe some murder, uh, but uh, wow, I didn't expect to go there. Uh, but they're just like, how can a guy who uh, 
was so liberal in his life, so progressive in his life, um, you know, championing all these causes, uh, be behind one of the most destructive weapons in all of mankind. And a few chapters into it, it was just like, oh, I get it now. Just, <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> you know, you, you, I mean, I know they're making the uh, parallels to uh, Prometheus, but I mean, it's Pandora's box, human curiosity and everything. And so it's uh, hubris. It's a, It doesn't matter how conservative or liberal you are, there's always hubris. And so there's that. Uh, but uh, so far, they've done a, a, a and I agree with the authors on this. I don't think Robert Oppenheimer was a, an all-out communist. What they're saying is, is the guy had a lot of friends that were communists, and they had some shared ideas, him and some of his communist friends, but he was, he was an intellectual, kind of going back to the hubris thing. And the Soviets want everybody on the same page, whereas Robert Oppenheimer's like, yeah, I agree with you on this, this, this. But I'm also a scientist, a, a theoretical physicist, and I kind of want to walk to the beat of my own drum. So I don't think he was ever a spy for Soviet Russia. But uh, yeah, you, you can understand why there was the investigation of him back in the 50s. Thing is, uh, you know, the, I, and I'm kind of perplexed about this because even if Robert Oppenheimer, after he left uh, grade, you know, grade school or whatever, um, and uh, kept his nose clean, stayed out of some of these social circles, and was a physicist, I think he would still have been investigated just because of his upbringing. A lot of people don't realize how, how like, Marxist ideas were kind of in the United States uh, as early as the 1880s with intellectuals. Communism wasn't a thing in Russia until, like, what, 1918? Late, late teens in the 1900s? Over 100 years ago. But, uh, you know, you had all these intellectuals that were across the pond that shared those goals and looked at him and said, oh, yeah, the Soviets are doing it right. And then some of them went over there and uh, lied to their teeth about how great Soviets were. And then some had a coming to Jesus moment. And, uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of the uh, the gist of it so far. Um, but, you know, you know me by the company I keep, and that's what kind of gets him in trouble is what I'm getting at. All right, uh, a couple of RIPs. Bob Barker, age of 99. Price is Right, uh, game show host, and of course the memorable cameo in uh, Happy Gilmore, the champion of animal rights, and uh, just uh, everybody loved this guy. Everybody loved him, and I, th I think he's pretty much the benchmark of game show hosts. No disrespect to the late, great Alex Trebek. It's just, you know, getting up there with the microphone and uh, doing what he did an hour a day. And I, and I know they filmed this... Uh, these episodes like you know maybe in a two-day span but like you know to do that for five hours television live audience it takes some doing and uh the guy set uh set the precedent and very he was basically the ryan seacrest before there was a ryan seacrest of uh professional broadcaster so uh condolences to him and uh his family arlene sorkin maybe you guys know of her maybe you don't uh influential in her own way passed away at the age of 67 her husband christopher lloyd not the christopher lloyd but uh, the other christopher lloyd producer of shows such as modern family and frazier again she died at 67 i think thursday she was an actress on uh uh days of our lives i believe she was a soap opera actress but uh 
funny thing about that show is there was an episode where she dressed up as a Harley Quinn clown and an un, a then unknown uh, cartoon writer by the name of Paul Dini saw that and said, huh. And that was the inspiration for Harley Quinn, Joker's uh, girlfriend sidekick in the Batman the Animated Series. And uh, Dini liked it so much that he actually recommended Arlene Sorkin for the role and she became the voice of Harley Quinn. She was the first Harley Quinn, and literally the first, because there is no uh, character in the comic book, uh, because the character was created in 1992. Her comic book uh, counterpart was introduced finally to the world in 1999. Big deal. And it, it's an iconic take on the on the character. But uh, I've got this in my, uh, my nerd book library here, Dark Knight. Uh, Knight spelled N-I-G-H-T. It's a semi-autobiographical uh, account by Paul Dini about the night that he was mugged and basically had his face smashed in and one of the first people that reached out to him after that happened was Arlene Sorkin and she was the one who's like uh you got to get to a hospital your face is pretty much disintegrated uh so she seemed like a pretty decent uh, gal and this just comes about 10 months after Kevin Conroy died so uh, again condolences to her family all right I like it I like it when I'm on the right track about something and other people pick up on it. And I can't say this is an original thought of mine. It's just what I have been observing about streaming platforms for the better part of a couple of years now because there's so damn many of them. I mean, it used to be just Netflix and Hulu, right? And it was easier to navigate than, yeah, okay, Amazon, Apple, kind of the offshoots. But then uh, movie studios started going, hey, maybe we can do it. Like, you know, Warner Brothers and Paramount and uh, Universal and Disney. And the answer is no. This is from movieweb.com. This is actually linked up on the Mike Davidson Facebook page. If you want to read up on it, I'm going to give you the title and kind of gloat about it. I didn't write it. Somebody else did. But uh, this is the title. The future of streaming is unskippable ads, higher prices, and less content. Boom. Basically. That's what it is. Boom. Because this is what I've been saying. It's unprofitable. You can't make a profit from it. I mean, Disney cannot make a profit from it. HBO Max, none of these none of these studios can. That's why they're cut, cutting content. Uh, you know, shows that were, uh, you know, running for about a season or two, they're canceled and sometimes just outright dropped from the platform. See Willow. That, that show never existed, for Christ's sake. Uh, but yeah, they, they're doing this with... Uh, you know, the subscription fees, and it's not enough to cover the cost of these losses they're taking on shows, especially when Disney Plus uh, just did Secret Invasion six episodes for $212 million. That's insane. So what's going to happen is they're going to produce fewer of these shows. Uh, they're going to have these shows supported by ads, much like they do on basic television, and the subscription rates are going to go up just kind of like cable television. Uh, there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, one thing that this article does point out that I I kind of kind of gave some thought to, but not as much, is like how much the the brands of these uh, of these studios and these little intellectual properties underneath them are just diminished by them. It's watered watered down. And I've you know I've I've taken shots at. Uh, the Star Wars and MCU for Disney, but I mean, this is all across the board. These are shows that you expect people, that, you know, shows that are based off of movie properties. They expect people just to sit down and watch and plop 
12, 15 bucks a month down to watch. And it's just not happening. It is not freaking happening. And, you know, you got to also think about the writer's strike. If the writers get what they want. And, again, there's a couple of things I agree with the writers and the actors on. Like, uh, you know, AI. Not a big fan of that concept. Um, but, again, they kind of painted themselves in the corner with woke content. Um, and, you know, studio execs making all this money like Bob Iger. Like, what the hell is he doing? But uh, if, if they get... If they, if the writers and the actors get a share of the revenue and lack thereof of these streaming shows, because it's not the same as syndication rights, uh, where you could underwrite this with commercial revenue, or the fact that more people watch TV, network television, cable television, barely, than a lot of these streaming platforms, the fact that you're going for a percentage is insane. I mean, uh, the Robert Carradine, the famous uh, thing that got went on the internet a couple weeks back, where his residuals for Lizzie McGuire were pretty much zero dollars and zero cents, and Disney somehow mailed him a check for zero dollars and zero cents. Well, I mean, how many people are watching a twenty-year-old kids show the same way they did twenty years ago? Yeah, you know, it's it's almost like yeah, you get a little bit of money, but you you don't get that mu that same amount of streaming. You don't get that uh, from cable the same way you used to. Is what I'm getting at. So. That's what's going on. Uh, streaming television is a bubble. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. I mean, when it was just Netflix and a couple of these other things, it, that's one thing. But when the studios got involved and said, hey, we'll just make people watch our studio content, not realizing that, hey, people like some things from Disney, some things from Warner Brothers, not everything from these studios, uh, that was going to be a problem. Oh, well. Um, Tom Ruger. Uh, one of the uh, creators of Animaniacs, great uh, great kids cartoon back in the uh, 90s, and their approach was, we're not writing for kids, we're basically writing what makes us laugh. But I'm sure that standards and practices are like, okay, this is still a kid's show. Uh, he talked about the recent reboot of the show on Hulu and why it failed, and he said none of the original creators were involved in it. It's like, you know, hey, if you... You know, our approach was different from this approach, and it's like, oh, no kidding. It's, uh, you know, and this is... All that Hollywood really has right now, uh, aside from dealing with the strike, are these reboots and, and cashing in on the nostalgia of shit. And uh, it's a zombie show. It's just a zombie franchise. Um, Animaniacs. And again, I mean, how many people are as, as excited about any Animaniacs as they were back in the 90s? I mean, I watched it. I thought it was great. But I'm now in my 40s. And experience has taught me you can never go back home again. You can't capture that same magic. It's almost like we're doing a different show with the same faces you do and the same uh, the, the same umbrella to identify this show, but it's not the same show. And I think Tom was kind of getting at that, and it's true of a lot of franchises. I do want to say that one streaming platform is kind of sort of getting it right. Uh, Peacock, they're gearing up for Halloween, so for the next couple of months, starting September 1st, they're going to have a whole buttload of uh, shows streaming on there that you can enjoy, or movies that you can enjoy, uh, including uh, you know, the Child's Play franchise. I mean, it's not my jam, but I know it was a very popular one from the 80s and 90s. Uh, a whole bunch of movies from there. A few of the Halloween movies. Uh, some of the classic Universal movies like Wolfman, Dracula, Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, pretty enjoyable. The original thing with um, 
or the uh, the John Carpenter version with uh, Kurt Russell, and I still maintain to this day the end uh, with him and uh, Keith David staring down each other. That's like one of the best endings of any movie of all time. Um, I, I will have this, if I haven't already, uh, linked up on the Mike Davidson Facebook page. You can peruse that, but I'm getting kind of geared up for Halloween. I'm, I'm t- after, after dealing with 95 degrees in a warehouse without air conditioning last week, I'm, I'm totally ready for uh, things to get a little cooler. Uh, this is kind of... Jane Curtin, she's uh, one of the original cast members of Saturday Night Live, one of the OGs, as it were. Um, and she uh, was doing an interview recently, and she was talking about how her and her husband act- actually sat down to watch some of the original Saturday Night Lives. Maybe it was a, a, a yeah, thing of nostalgia with her. And I could kind of understand being proud of uh, something that you did, something that you helped create, and and sitting down and enjoying it. Well, she did that recently, and she said, it sucked. She goes, oh, my God, everything's so dated. It, 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 she didn't laugh once. There wasn't a polite chuckle. Jane Curtin did not laugh at any of her uh, in her castmates' stuff. That's what she said. Um, and I think she's being a little harsh on uh, about it because there are still some old-school Saturday Night Live skits that make me laugh. The, the Chocolate Frosted Donuts one with John Belushi is hilarious. It's great. But she's kind of on to something here. And this is something that current Saturday Night Live writers and uh, late night talk show writers should uh, pay heed to. And anybody writing a freaking show. Uh, uh, being political and current all the freaking time does not age well. Because the the frame of reference changes over the course of years. You might... You might get that uh, hot applause button instantly, but people are not going to know what the hell you're talking about to uh, in 20, 30 years' time. I mean, Jesus. Uh, if, if a 14-year-old stumbled upon old episodes of Saturday Night Live, he might find some of it hilarious. But, I mean, is he really going to sit there going, Oh, man, they really stuck it to that Dick Gerald Ford. <laughs> oh, yeah. Timely. That's, that's kind of the problem. I think, too, that's why, like, um, I know in the 90s, the early 90s, early to mid-90s, Saturday Night Live, I mean, they did do some political stuff. Denny Carvey as uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, the late, great Phil Hartman as um, Bill Clinton, and these were great takes. They were memorable takes. But primarily, you wouldn't think of that that era as a political era because it was so damn goofy. You had Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, David Spade, Chris Farley, and others, and they, they produced memorable characters. Uh, Mike Myers was also on that cast. Uh, Sprockets, Wayne's World, and all that. Uh, those characters weren't necessarily political. They were just they just stuck to you. You're like, oh yeah, they were great uh, pieces of pop culture. They're they're almost timeless. But now, I mean, like I don't know who the go-to character is on Saturday Night Live now. Is I I, I really don't because it's gotten so political. Hey, speaking of political, Disney is not going to cancel Snow White and the Seven Berkeley Professors. There, there was a rumor about that going on the internet. I saw that last week, and I was like, no, they're not going to do it. Um, even if a kid hitties gets snickered, the, the worst I could see happening with this movie is it gets scuttled away to Disney Plus and and forgotten about promptly. That's, that's the worst I can see happening to this if anything happens to it. But it will make its way to the movie theaters and 
disappoint and all these pundits are going to go, well, what went wrong? And I'm like, well, what, um, what went right? So <laughs> it's not canceled. I wouldn't want the movie to be canceled. Uh, if it got canceled, I wouldn't be sad. But if, if it continues to make its march to the theaters, it's just kind of like, yeah, okay, let's, let's let this turd fester in the wind. Couple of uh, rockers uh, causing controversy. One has repented. I guess uh, uh, Carlos Santana was on stage recently. He said, "A man is a man. A woman is a woman," and it went viral, and a lot of people actually liked it. And then he re re repented because uh, he offended the trans community. I'm just thinking, well, what did you think was going to happen when you said these things? I don't know if it was so much him changing his mind as it was his manager saying, "Hey, man, you you kind of need the money. You need to you just you know fake it, get on with it," because uh, it just it, it's no it's a weird abrupt about face is what I'm getting at here. There was no there was no fight back on uh, pushing his point of view. It was just like he gets on stage, he says his piece, he gets off stage, and oh, okay, I guess I should say something. Uh, Alice Cooper has said something along the lines like, uh, it's kind of insane to have a six-year-old boy choose his gender. I don't think he's wrong, but uh, I guess the makeup company, this is kind of weird, the makeup company that Alice Cooper partners with uh, has decided to sever ties with him. I mean, it's 2023, and uh, a shock rocker has basically offended a progressive company. I just I, That just makes you kind of shrug your shoulders a little bit. I, I can see Alice... I mean, if Alice Cooper did apologize for this one, I think he would wait a while. Uh, but I don't know if he will, because I don't think he gives a shit. He just—he's just kind of a—he's kind of a plain-spoken guy. He just says whatever he wants to say, and he does. Um, he also went on the record about the the Johnny Depp uh, Amber Heard thing. And uh, yeah, Johnny Depp is a guitar player in Hollywood Vampires, a little thing that he, Alice Cooper, and Aerosmith, Joe Perry do. And he goes, you know, we never really talked about it. I never once watched the trial. Never once. And it's just, I just shrugged about it. And Johnny Depp didn't really talk about it. And, uh, yeah, I can't believe that's going on. And he would just go, hey, how's my guitar sound? You know, when they would do sound, uh, sound checks. It wasn't a big topic on the tour. It did not impress Alice Cooper. He goes, I just think we, the reason why we talked about it was it was televised. And it's like, well, yeah, it was, it was everywhere. I, I even talked a little bit about it. But it's just, like, after the 90s, after Court TV and all things Menendez and uh, Bobbitt and, of course, OJ, nothing can really shock you anymore. Nothing. Not at all. Not shocking at all here. Aqua is going on a tour this, uh, this uh, <laughs> fall slash winter 2023 to cash in on Barbie Girl. And, of course, Barbie just uh, owned... 2023 it is the number one movie of 2023 I'm trying to think uh all the movies that uh, did well i think uh super mario brothers second oppenheimer is the fourth best movie right now but uh aqua's touring <laughs> to, to cash in on that and that one song they did and look i i have no reason to go and watch barbie if you do knock yourself out that's fine uh and this has nothing to do with the movie i'm just going to say it right now barbie girl as a song flat out sucks it is one of the worst pieces of pop culture ever conceived annoying voice annoying background everything about this thing sucks they're cashing in on that it's almost as bad as expecting residual money for lizzie mcguire okay oliver anthony uh the rich men north of richmond song which went viral 
And, uh, you know, he's, he's come out and talked a little more about it. And he goes, it's because the Republicans references referenced the song, I guess, during the debate. I didn't watch the debate. Um, but all, but Oliver went on the company, uh, Oliver went on the company, Oliver, Anthony went on the record and said, Hey, look, this is a song about both the Republicans and Democrats. Um, you know, basically making all these rules and regulations for big corporations to profit. And that's my critique of it. You know, he's critiquing the system. He says, yeah, Joe Biden's a problem, but he's part of the problem. And I, you know, I think he's over explaining it because I, I got the gist of the song. We have a bloated federal government, and no one seems to want to do anything about it. I did do a little dumpster diving on the Atlantic Facebook page. Didn't comment because the comments are basically the same. If you read the Atlantic, you think the government can do no wrong. And the only wrong it can do is it's just not doing enough. But people were just absolutely dismayed about this song. What's your thoughts about this song? Well, I can't believe that this man doesn't understand what government's trying to do for people like him, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's just the same snobbish bullshit. Um, and, of course, you had uh, Billy Bragg, the uh, folk singer, go after him with his take, like, uh, rich men something. It, basically, it's the lefty take uh, of the song, and it's kind of, it's a serious Weird Al, and it's like, you can't do serious Weird Al. Not at all. Don't do that. Um, but everybody's talking about if you like uh, the Richmond north of Richmond, you know, you're basically just nodding along like a seal, clapping along because, hey, uh, they, they want you to do this. You know, the GOP. They, you know, they're basically kind of making it think if you, if you like the song, you like the message, you're part of a cult. Meanwhile, uh, Miss Eras. Taylor Swift, you know, she does three or four nights uh, in a city and just, uh, she has people peeing in diapers just to see her. She was down in Mexico City recently and they had a spillover in the lot. People couldn't get in the show. So you had hundreds of people sitting outside of the stadium while she performed just to hear her sing. Like, God, like, it's like the second coming of Jesus here. Uh, she's making a lot of money off of this tour. And, you know, she's probably, she is the biggest performer in the world. There's no doubt about it. She, and the success is earned. And to a degree, I applaud her. But there's a lot that I don't applaud. And it's like this this men mentality that you know, she can do no wrong. And that, you know, she's a goddess. And it's okay to worship her. But a guy who doesn't have a record deal, who isn't touring the world, who isn't filling stadiums, uh, basically leading this online cult, is tone deaf. But then again, that's what you get. Expect for people that uh, actually think uh, the Atlantic is de is a decent publication. All right, um, Star Garden Topless Bar, North Hollywood. Oh, I'm sorry, Star Garden Topless Dive Bar, unionized in Ho North Hollywood. They um, they they're actually more successful than the writers and the, the uh, actors guilds. Uh, they're now unionized. Uh, the, the dancers there. And uh, the the management at the strip bar recognizes them. I think they're the first unionized strip club in America. And Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine was there to celebrate their victory with guitar riffs. Yeah, I'm sure that's why he was there. Um, I mean, yeah, he's political, but come on, man. What strip club? It, it seems like he was channeling his inner Motley crew, looking for an excuse just to be at a place like this. Uh, but there you go. Uh, their, their platform was one with a pole on it. All right, San Francisco. 
Uh, kind of wrapping things up here, as you know, it's become um, a toilet last few years, uh, especially after the pandemic when people realized that they could work from home, not spend any of their money and have any of their tax revenue go back into the city. And now it's just it's just it's a ghost town. It is a shell of what it used to be, and it's getting worse. Well, there was this guy that was trying to organize. Not, what was his name? A, anonymous San Fran. San Fran Anonymous Insider. He was trying to organize a Doom Loop walk. 30 bucks a head. And he didn't realize that when you do stuff like this, on the internet, you're going to attract attention. <laughs> so just, uh, I think, uh, mere days or hours before the walk, he canceled it. And all these people that were supposed to take it were like, well, what the hell do we do? So somebody else is like, hey, that was not nice of him to show the bad parts of San Francisco. I want to show you all the cool parts of San Francisco. And I'm sure there's still some cool parts of San Francisco, but they're just not as many as there used to be. So they uh, departed from City Hall where uh, there is an encampment of homeless drug users. So it's almost like the doom walk happened after all. Just somebody else led the charge. And it's kind of hard to accentuate the positive when there's so much negative in that city and you know it, it kind of sucks that it's happened to them but at the same time citizens can vote citizens uh you know they have the right to pick the leaders that can pull them out of this or at least point the way to leading out of it because i believe that it's always the, the citizen the voter is a lot better a lot more capable than some people give them credit for. And that's kind of the issue with San Francisco. They've been so reliant on government for the longest time, thinking, no, that's, it's a civic duty. These people are responsible. These people are smarter than me. And the answer is, well, no, no, they're not. you got to realize what's working and what's not working. And right now, there's a whole hell of a lot not working in San Francisco, in California, and uh, other places. It's not to say that Indiana does not have its problems. Wrapping this up... Uh, just a few days ago in Vincennes, Indiana, a man was pulled over by the cops, OWI, operating while intoxicated, under the influence. He was operating a power wheel. Skinny, drug-addled dude operating a, <laughs> operating a power wheel on a roadway, and he was high off of a little pot and maybe a little bit of methamphetamine. Who would have thought? Yeah, shocking. All right, that's it for now. Until next time. You've been listening to Mike Davidson Live. Be sure to check him out on social media. Like him at facebook.com backslash mdavidsonlives. Follow him on Twitter. Look for at Davidson Live.